Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Uh, my sister is on an airplane right now. Um, my my day started, um, first of all, good morning. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is hour two of Mornings with Carmen. My day started, like it always does, at uh, 4 a.m. Um, and probably like you, I checked my phone. And I, I know, I know, I know, I know Justin Early would say, don't do that. Don't, don't check your phone. Like the word first. Absolutely. I know. But let me just go ahead and confess that because my alarm is on my phone. My phone is in my hand and I confess, I just confess that I check it. And so there was a text that came in uh, overnight from my sister. And, you know, and she said, I know you're asleep. I know you got to get up early. It was a long text. And she's laying out for me this story of her friend uh, Peggy in Texas. And I shared that in the first hour and asked you to be praying with me. And we prayed um, not not only for Peggy and her husband, but um, others that we know who are Jewish who are feeling this particularly personally and acutely today. So um, the reason my sister was then up so early, which she said, you know, I'll be up no matter when you get up, I'll be up because I'm, you know, going to get on a plane. She's on her way to a meeting. And so we back and forth on text talked about a few things. And then I, I got her on the phone and talked her through a few things because she wants to be a good friend. She wants to she doesn't want to be paralyzed. Um, and so we talked about things she can do, not only um, encouraging Peggy to get on the plane in Texas and go to the meeting that they're both supposed to be attending, um, because you don't let the terrorists win. Like, they want to disrupt your life. They want to keep you from doing the things that um, God has set before you to do, whatever those are, whatever those are. And so put one foot in front of another today and and get up and go and do. Laugh and sing and go to birthday parties and hold babies and take care of uh, of your neighbor. Like go go and do. Go and do. Don't let the terrorists win. That's a part of this, like right? Part of it is is getting up and getting dressed and going and doing the things that are before us to do, even as we grieve with those who grieve. And so um one of the things that my sister and I prayed was that, you know, God would put some people in her path that would be of encouragement her to her today. So uh <laughs> so she texted me from the airplane cuz you know this is how good God is, right? There's just no way I could have like prayed for a specific person to be sitting next to my sister, right? I just <laughs> you couldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. It would be it's that was a silly prayer, right? This would be such a silly prayer. God put something you know, just to put somebody as my sister's seatmate that will just delight her heart. Just it'll just delight her heart. So my sister's seatmate on her flight is Bishop Kencanis, which will mean nothing to you, but uh, he happens to be the person who uh, who blessed her babies. Like, he's the person who baptized her babies. And so it's just this, 
you know, right? Only, only God, only, only God could come up with that and have that guy in that seat on this day uh, during this hour for that flight. And so I texted her back and I said, um, ask him about Israel and start taking notes because there you go. That's, you know, give, give her a job to do. Um, I want to talk about raw grief because funerals are beginning today. Um, the first funerals actually took place yesterday, but you're going to see a wave, like you are going to begin to see a wave of funerals for um, the Israelis who were killed by Hamas terrorists, not only on Saturday, but in the subsequent um, hours and days. And uh, as Hezbollah has uh, attacked the northern part of Israel, even as Hamas um, you know, attacked them in the south, uh, this is not over. This is a long way from over. You are going to see all kinds of things um, as this war develops, um, because it is Israel's intent to eliminate Hamas. And in order to eliminate Hamas, they are going to have to go into Gaza, and that is going to be neighborhood to neighborhood. It is a very, very, very densely populated, geographically small place. Geographically small, like I say, you know, hmm twice the size of D.C. or think about the size of Manhattan. So that's how, what we're talking about in terms of geography. Uh, it is under siege, which means there's no way out. There's also no way in for supplies. Um, and the Israelis will, they will go neighborhood to neighborhood and they will go door to door and they will find Hamas. They will go into the tunnels and they will find their hostages. Um, and door to door means exactly what it sounds like. And so this is going to be long. It's going to be difficult. It's urban warfare. Um, and we should prepare ourselves. But the funerals are beginning today. So I want to talk for just a moment about raw grief. Um, we don't grieve as those who grieve with no hope, but we all know what grief is. And if you've been in an experience of raw grief, I, want, I just want to highlight this today and I want to take you back there for just a moment because this is how sympathy works. So you and I remember what it's like. And if you don't know what raw grief is like, I will describe it as drowning. You feel like you're drowning. You're sinking, you're tossed, you're crushed, you can't catch your breath, you can't tell up from down, you can't, your feet can't find the bottom, panic begins to set in, you know your brain needs oxygen but you can't breathe, your chest begins to burn because you can't breathe, darkness begins to close in, you can feel every beat of your own pounding heart. And your heart begins to race. You feel like you're surrounded, crushed on all sides. You can't escape. You feel as if you're all alone. Raw grief. Your brain, your heart, pounding in your chest, burning, screams for oxygen, but you can't breathe. You literally, like, in raw grief, you, you like, you can't breathe. It's also an experience of going totally numb to everything but the pain. And so you can't even hear the person next to you saying, breathe, just breathe, take a breath, breathe, which, by the way, is what you should say. If you are the person standing, holding, present for and with a person in raw grief, just tell them to breathe. Breathe, breathe, just breathe. And as you are encouraging them to breathe and holding them close and assuring them of your presence, pray in the spirit 
for the Ruha of God, the breath of God, the wind of God, the spirit of God. To bring hope and comfort. Let me encourage you to reach... Dr. George Barna is back with us today, Director of Research for the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University with a brand new book, Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. George, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, it's so good to be back with you again. Okay, we have been anticipating this book um, because we've been talking with you about the research that is that you know is beneath and behind it. So just, you know, in your own words, with your own sense of like why you wrote it and what you hope to achieve um, with its release, take us into Spiritual Champions. Well, I mean, the the motivation behind it is that the country is going down the tubes and the church is assisting in that more than preventing it. And so when you step back and say, well, how can that be? Why, Why is all of this happening? You start peeling away the layers of the onion and you discover at the center of the onion, the, 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 the core of it all is worldview. And of course, as we've talked about before, the most important thing related to worldview is recognizing that everybody has one, sure, but it begins forming at 15 to 18 months of age. It's fully formed by the age of 13 and neither parents nor churches are seemingly aware of that and they're certainly not doing anything terribly helpful toward that and so the the thrust behind this book is to wake us up and say look if we want to save america let's get first things first i mean it's all about god and so let's recognize how he made us what he made us for how we operate within the framework of his universe and what can we do to make things go the way he intended them to go? And so we've got to go back and recognize parents are responsible for children. It's not the culture. It's not schools. It's not the church. It's parents. And the the most important thing that they're called to do is to raise their children to be disciples of Jesus, uh, or what I would call in the book, spiritual champions. And so in order to do that, Step one is, hey, how about we work on their heart, mind, and soul, their worldview? Let's help them to think correctly so that they can act correctly because you do what you believe. And and the book is geared toward helping parents to understand what it takes to raise their child to be a disciple. You know, nobody enters into the raising of a child, the having of a family, the raising of a child, you know, the being a parent. Nobody enters into that and says, you know, I really want to, I really want to mess my kid up. I really want to, you know, I really want to have a kid who, you know, flounders around and, you know, doesn't have a sense of themselves or knows how to find their way in the world. But parents also do not have, have not had really good research-based resources that are designed to help them achieve the kind of outcome that you're talking about. How do you raise a child so that they will be, you know, what you're describing here, a, a person of uh, conviction and character and, and you know, who walks through life 
as a confident disciple of Jesus with a genuinely biblical worldview, not just in their head, but in their heart and in their actions. So this is about disciple making. Um, And I appreciate that, you know, that's where you center this conversation. You know, how can parents successfully um, raise spiritual champions? Well, that is about disciple making. Let's talk about the four practices that you outline in terms of disciple making uh, in this book. Sure. I mean, you know, when we look at parents, I totally agree with you. No parents want to mess it up. They mean well. They, for the most part, though, we discovered, do not have a plan for what Mm -hmm. they're going to do with their kids. They're kind of making it up on the fly. Why is that? Because they're distracted and they're deceived. They're distracted by all the things going on in their life. They're incredibly busy. They're juggling a lot of balls. And raising their children is just one of those many balls that they're juggling. Mm. But that then ties into uh, the deception. Uh, And that relates to their priorities. They don't think that raising their kids is as important as doing a great job at work, making a lot of money, getting all the resources they can, you know, these kinds of things, having a great reputation, et cetera, feeling good about themselves. And and so, you know, they, they work with their kids when they can, but they don't have this good plan. So when we look at the parents who are doing a great job at discipling their children, I found that there are four practices that they habitually engage in. The first of which is wrapping their mind and heart around the priority of being a parent to their child and not just giving them a place of safety and making them comfortable and seeing them smile and feel happy. Those tend to be the goals of most parents. But what I found is that the disciple-making parents are after is they intentionally want to raise their children to be disciples. So Mm -hmm. you've got to make that life-defining commitment to Christ. You've got to identify yourself, first and foremost, as a disciple of Jesus. And what you want to do is fulfill your responsibility to the one whom you're a disciple of, which is to raise up the children that he gave you to be disciples as well. And so that means that you've got to be investing in your relationship with God. You've got to embrace your identity in Christ. And you've got to live a life that sends a consistent set of signals to your children that this is who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. This is what I believe in. And you can see it through the choices that I make. That's your worldview. And so so all of that is like the first step in the process. We're talking with Dr. George Barna. Um, I know that you're already furiously taking notes. The book is Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. When you think about your children, do you receive them as a sacred trust? When you um, consider your parenting, do you recognize that um, that's, you know, your identity in Christ, this life-defining commitment to Jesus as a parent um, is the is the priority, and that in that you're going to find the plan. We're going to talk about these other disciple-making practices that are outlined in the book in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. 
As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dr. George Barna, we're talking about his new book, Raising Spiritual Champions. I think it is fair to say that um, uh, that Dr. Barna's book is a gift to parents today who recognize um, the, the, the status of things, um, not only in the United States of America, but in our own homes and uh, in the life of our own children. And you want to to do better. You want to have resources. You want to have a plan. You want those resources to be research-based and and biblically-based that's going to actually help you successfully raise your children to become spiritually mature adults. That's That's the gift that we're unpacking today in raising spiritual champions. We've talked about the first disciple-making practice as making a life-defining commitment to Jesus. So as a parent, have you done that? Um, George, what's um, what's next on the list of the disciple-making practices here? Well, the second one that I saw as I studied these parents is that uh, they embrace biblical truth principles. Now, you can only embrace them if you spend enough time studying God's Word. And by the way, let me make a big distinction. Over the last couple of years, my discipleship research has found there's a big distinction between people who read the Bible and people who study the Bible. Mm -hmm. People who make disciples study the Bible. I mean, they, they, they spend a lot of time tearing it apart, trying to figure out how different parts correlate with each other, trying to figure out what the stories have to do with the principles, what it looks like in our culture today. All these kinds of things, that's part of studying. You're not just reading it like a novel. Ooh, that's interesting. Look what he did to the Pharisees. You know, what you're trying to do is is capture the mind and the heart of God because he's distilled that for us in the pages of this book he gave to us so that we can thrive in life. And people who make disciples are so serious about the process that to them the Bible isn't just a good book to read and you can check it off your religious to-do list for the week. It's like the, the pathway that you've got to follow every day. And it's the thing that's designed to shape and and reinforce, uh, shape your mind and reinforce the principles that you own from God's Word. So, you know, uh, there's all kinds of truth principles that are that are core elements of a biblical worldview, whether we're talking about your purpose in life, uh, ideas about truth, understanding uh, the nature and the character of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Satan, uh, looking at uh, the conjunction of spiritual activity with spiritual belief, what kind of things should you do because of your beliefs, Uh, you know, what difference did it make that God created the world and how he created the world, how does family enter into this? Uh, what is the value of life in God's eyes? Uh, 
uh, you know, let's talk about human nature, human character, juxtapose that against God's nature and God's character. And how do we move from what we naturally have to who he is? Uh, we can talk about say, all of these things are part of that study process. And, and it was so energizing to me to, to talk to these folks and interview these folks about their Bible regimen what they go through, the routines that they've developed to know those principles and to own them. And in the book, I not only talk about those and how we measure it, but also talk about seven cornerstones. Won't go into that now, but, you know, if you're trying to figure out, okay, but I've got a, you know, five-year-old kid here. What do I do with my five-year-old boy, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, who can't really study the Bible the same way I do? Start with the seven cornerstones. It lays a fabulous foundation on which to build a complete biblical worldview. You got to lay a strong foundation. So that was the second thing, uh, embracing the Bible truth principles. The third one has to do with then taking those principles and converting them into a lifestyle, a lifestyle that, by the way, your children are going to be watching very carefully. One of the interesting things I found this past year, Carmen, in our research uh, with adolescents and with teenagers is that most kids in America do not trust their parents in this area of worldview development. Now, why is that? It's because kids are confused. They're trying to figure out how life works, who they are, who they want to be, how they're going to get there, all these big life questions. And so they're looking for cues from their parents. But the problem I discovered is they they told us, you know, my my parents are just as confused as I am about mm. worldview. And they don't call it worldview. They call it philosophy of life or making sense of reality, all these things. Uh, but uh, they said, my parents are just as confused as I am. We said, well, what brought you to that conclusion? I said, well, my parents say one thing, but then they do something different. And so it's that disconnect between belief and behavior that not only dismantles what you claim your worldview to be, but it also throws your children off the track of following you as a parent. Because the model that you've given to them is that you say one thing, but you do another. So probably what you really believe is is closer to your behaviors because we do what we believe. So kids wind up, this is, by the way, why they wind up turning to arts and entertainment media why that has such a dramatic effect on them. Because when you watch a two-hour movie, you watch a a four-minute clip on YouTube, you you listen to a three-minute piece of music, you play a, a video game for a half hour, all of those things are conveying elements of a worldview. And within the body of that substance, it's primarily consistent. It's internally consistent. Kids appreciate that because there's no mixed message. They're getting the cue Mm. that they're looking for that they did not get from their parents. And so media becomes the primary discipler of our children. Are they discipling them to follow Jesus? Not at all. In fact, I've got a chapter in the book where we, we take apart, we do a content analysis of the most popular children's media in the country today. And we identify what is the worldview that this program, this video, this social media platform is consistently pushing. 
and we identify the Marxism, the postmodernism, the secular humanism, the Eastern mysticism cues that those media consistently give. So if you want to disciple your child, you better not only know what you believe and why you believe it, but you better be converting it into a lifestyle that your children are watching and say, ah, that's what that belief looks like in practice. And then the final thing, just quickly here, is that you got to measure how well you're doing it, discipling your child. Don't assume that because you tried, that's all there is. You, that's good enough. You don't need to do anything else. You need to measure it. Now, I'm not saying do a survey, but, but I am saying have a deep enough intimate enough relationship with your child and spend enough time with them and around them that you can talk to them about these things. You can dig into questions, have Socratic conversations with them, because that's what disciple makers do. We don't always just tell people what to believe. We might ask them what they believe, why they believe it, how they practice that, how that's working for them, how that comports with what scripture teaches, on and on and on. But it's through questions that you lead somebody to be a disciple. It's not by beating them over the head with the Bible. And so you got to measure this. You got to reinforce the things they're doing right. You got to challenge the things they're doing wrong. And you got to rejoice where progress is being made because that encouragement is key to your child. That's so good. I think uh, I think on that one about figuring out a way to have some kind of report card, and it could be you know, you know, along the quarter or semester system, but like actually measuring it, um, you know, periodically over time in a way that we we actually talk about and we talk about as a family and um, and what does that look like and where where are the areas that we could improve and you know where are the are the areas where you know you've really you really excel and you're really good at that and you can teach the rest of us, George. I'm hoping you'll come back to talk about um, the the seven cornerstones at some point and then also the third and final section of the book. Um, you know, which really does focus on media and church-based ministries and how they impact our kids and um, and how parents um, and the rest of us could be influenced to really effectively campaign for the discipling of our children. Um, would you do that? Can we continue to unpack this book together over time? Well, I would love to do that. Yeah, I think this is the most important thing we can be doing in America today. All of our social yeah. problems would fritter away if people had a biblical worldview. Wouldn't be a perfect society. None of us would be perfect. Man, it'd be a lot different than it is today. Well, and you're really well positioned to do this because this is a conversation you've been engaged in for, you know, I don't know, four decades now. And um, uh, and times have changed and people have changed, but the opportunity to disciple children is, you know, parents need a lot of help and they want help and you're really providing that. So thank you for the gift of, of this book and this conversation. Have you done a fruit inspection lately? Uh, Jesus says that, you know, you, you can tell a tree by its fruit. So, you know, just walk around in the orchard for a moment. And, uh, you know, can you tell an apple tree from a peach tree or a pear tree? Can you tell a good piece of fruit from a rotten one? Um, what does that have to do with the fruit of the Spirit and what kind of fruit God is seeking to cultivate in the lives of believers? So we talk, um, we could talk about unrighteous fruit, or we could talk about the fruit of righteousness. And obviously, when we're having this conversation, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit uh, that Paul 
outlines for us in Galatians chapter 5. So do a little fruit inspection for a moment. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are they evident in your life and growing in ever more abundant measure? And can people see them? Can people see them? Not just in, uh, in what you do for Jesus, but on your social media. Our friend Karen Swallow Pryor is back. She's got a new book. It's called The Evangelical Imagination. But what I want to highlight first is this piece uh, posted at Religion News, and it's about the fruit of the Spirit and our witness online. Karen, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. I totally want to talk about your new book, um, but let's, um, let's actually start where I suggested that I wanted to start with you. Um, when did the fruit of the Spirit become optional for Christians? That is the lead question at the at the beginning of the article. So can we talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, I just, that, po- I just pose it. I'm just going to pose it like your friend did. When did the fruit of the Spirit become optional for Christians? And of course, we all know the answer. It's a rhetorical question. It did not. It is not optional, right? It is not. So if it's if it's if people are acting like it's optional, then what does that what do we do with that? That's the real question. All right. And so um, for those of you who are listening and you're like, I don't even know what uh, Karen and Carmen are talking about. So the fruit of the spirit is um, is evidence that a person is their life is animated by the spirit of Christ, that the Holy Spirit has actually taken up residence in a person and um, it's not just redecorating from the inside out, but actually making a person new. Um, it's called the process of sanctification. So by one degree of glory to another, you know, I am saying to the Holy Spirit, I'm going to cooperate with you today. I'm going to yield to you today. Please make me more like Jesus. And so, um, you know, where I might uh, have jealousy um, that fruit is going to be, you know, pushed out, and and it's going to be replaced with, um, you know, the the form of love of Christ that you know is jealous for nothing but God. So those would be ways of thinking about this. So when we talk about the fruit of the spirit, we are talking about the evidence in a person's life that the Holy Spirit is present: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. Um, not sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. It's quite a list. It is. I know. I wasn't really a question there. It's more an observation. Karen is thinking I should ask her a question because it's supposed to be a conversation where there's like questions. And I'll just confess, Karen, that I I don't know quite what to say when people who present themselves as Christians on social media bear witness against themselves um, in terms of not only what they say, but the way they say what they say. So can we just address address that directly? Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, obviously, the fruit of the spirit it should be manifest in a believer's life everywhere they are, and and you know, in real life and on social media. And social media is is a big part of the problem. I think it is malforming us, and people act differently on social media than they do in real person. I mean, maybe some of them always talk that way, but I think that the possibility for anonymity or that distance uh, makes people think. They can, I mean, they say things that they would never say in person and do things that they would never do in person. Um, and and they are 
behaviors that are certainly not reflecting the fruit of the spirit. And as you said, they're bearing witness against themselves and they're, they're bearing witness against the name of Christ that they say they profess. So in this piece, you talk uh, uh, you talk a little bit about Eugene Peterson, and you talk um, a lot about Jesus. Um, do you think it's possible to know the will of God? And if so, how do we begin to walk in it? Well, I read a, a book many years ago that really uh, influenced my thinking about knowing the will of God. It's actually called... Um, Decision Making and the Will of God by Gary Friesen, an old classic. And the point that he makes is that the will of God is determined and um, complete in scripture and that anything else that has to do with decisions that we might be facing, choices we might be making um, that are, you know, that are covered in scripture are ones that um, we can make being guided by um, wisdom, discernment, and fruit of the spirit. And so, um, so th- that is, you know, the will of God is that we display the fruit of the spirit, that we be wise and discerning, and that we obey all of the, um, all of the words that, that he has given us in his scripture. It's so good. Um, you point to this kind of summary passage in Micah, and people, this might actually like roll off their uh, you know, the roll off their thoughts as I begin to read it. Um, but it does summarize what the Lord requires of us. So this is Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians um, uh, is is related to this, right? They're speaking, uh-huh. you know, they're they're speaking out of the same mouth, out of the same uh, mouth of, of the same God. And so when um, when you think about the way Christians are called to live by these virtues, and we'll use that term, by these virtues, justice and mercy and humility, um, those are not the ways of the world today. Mm. No, they certainly are not. They're not only... Uh, not the ways of individual Christians, but even some of the things that you see people advocating for in public and policy, um, their posture and uh, the the government that they want doesn't reflect that either as well. So, so all of this, I think, like leads us into a conversation about not not just the text, but the subtext um uh what's between the lines of text like right this is um we we have these texts of scripture um and we can point to them we can even memorize them we can um we can acknowledge them but the context in which we're trying to live this out is the reality of the world um and i'm going to use this as a segue into a conversation about your book um the evangelical imagination how stories, images, and metaphors created a culture in crisis. It, because it occurs to me, um, Karen, that if the text of Scripture were really the text of our lives, if that was really the story out of which we were we were living and moving and, and having our being, then we would be influencing the stories of the culture and not the other way around. Like, we would be the ones not just, you know, able to articulate the old, old story of Jesus, but there would be new evidence of the reality of Jesus 
changing us as we live in the midst of the world today. Mm. I really like how you put that. I mean, this uh, uh, if we were steeped in this story, we would be living out that story in this world in the way that the story reflects. There's like th- different parts there, right? Because I think that some people are, are, um, are proclaiming the story, but they're not really steeped in it enough to know what, it, what it, their lives should look like um, as they proclaim the story. Uh, and I think in some ways, maybe we, there is an influence, I think, but the influence that we have that I see right now is the one that's quieter. Uh, it's withdrawing from some of these unchristlike voices um, it's sifting, it's shifting. And um, I do see people who, because of their dismay over the culture wars and the state of the church today, are seeking more of Jesus. Um, and I think I think that's becoming more and more evident. Uh, and it, that will take time to have influence, but I think it will have the, the influence that's, that the Bible asks us to have. I think it's easy for us to, you know, let's say, look at two different pieces of artwork. And in one piece of artwork, you know, there is Jesus sitting at uh, at a table with some guys and they're um, and then he has his hand lifted up in, in what would be a totally odd posture. Um, and they all look uh, like there's they're slightly glowing. And then we look at another piece of art and it's very dark and it's um, dehumanizing and it's grotesque. And we say to ourselves, ah, This one piece Mm -hmm. of art is Christian and this other piece of art is clearly not Christian. Um, It's not hard for us to distinguish like those two things. But we have now lived so long as creatures in a culture where the two have been um, taken apart, woven together, and and the story has been, the, the, the good news, the good news story has been somehow, I don't know, like, like soaked like a sponge down into a culture that is clearly not seeking to advance Christ and the things of Christ. So can we can we talk when we come back about the the stories, the images, the metaphors that are actually that have shaped us, that are shaping us and then, you know, your your encouragement um uh, to us as as evangelical Christians today in in terms of the better story. Can we can we do that when we come back? Absolutely. All right. We're talking with Karen Swallow Pryor. She um, she has thought about things that you have not thought about. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. She's read things you haven't read. She's thought about things you haven't thought about. And then she has um, written for us um, wonderful, they're almost musings when you read them. And she's drawing forth really fantastic content and she's offering it up to us. So the evangelical imagination, how stories, images, and metaphors created a culture in crisis. But let me just go ahead and tell you, she also shows us the way out. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back with Karen Swallow Pryor. 150 million people, 150 million people actively use one particular app every month in the United States of America. I want that to be the Faith Radio app. How about you? If you're wondering how you could be encouraged in your faith at any time, anywhere, well, I got good news for you. There's literally an app for that. You can listen to Faith Radio live, any show on demand, no matter where you are at any time of the day or night. Download the free Faith Radio app right now. It's super easy. 
Just text the word APP to 877-933-2484 and click the link. Let's connect faith to life. Stories, images, metaphors, literature, art, music. I know you might be thinking to yourself, I, I'm not I, I'm not sure I could tell you the difference between a metaphor and a simile. That's okay. We're going to go to grammar school for just a moment, and we're going to have a little bit of an elementary education here um, with our friend Karen Swallow Pryor, because one of the things we are trying to get in view is actually like how our brains work. So when you when you use the term imagination, um, Karen, in the evangelical imagination, you're not talking about, you know, like what I'm sitting around imagining. What what how are you using that term so that we can understand how we are shaped by and and creating the culture in which we live? Well, of course, I begin with that kind of imagination that you just described, because that is the center of all of our of our thinking we, we use our imaginations all day and not necessarily in super creative ways but just to think about what we're going to do next or what we're going to say next that's using our imagination but what i really uh, cover in this book is how not just our individual imaginations um, reflect and shape our faith and the culture but how what the philosopher charles charles taylor calls our social imaginary uh, which is a collective pool of stories and images and metaphors and visions and myths that are handed down, how that collective pool shapes our culture, our expectations, our hopes, our desires, just as human beings, but also even within our particular community, such as evangelicalism. Yeah, so when we talk about the evangelical imagination, um, you know, like I might very quickly say, okay, well, the story of the cross shapes everything mm-hmm. else. Um, I might say the story of creation, um, the fall, redemption, recreation, new creation, like that's the storyline. Um, is that what you're talking about? Like what is in the background of everything I'm thinking about and therefore what I'm saying and how I'm engaging? Well, that would be, so what you just described would be the basic essential Christian story. And so what I cover in this book, being an evangelical and having been one and studied the movement for many years, um, I study the things that even beyond the basic Christian story have shaped and formed evangelicals for as long as that movement has been around, which is 300 years. So, for example, um, what's central to evangelicalism is an emphasis on conversion. Um, now, all Christians believe in conversion, but evangelicals emphasized it, particularly in the 18th century and all the way through now. So the fact that conversion is so important to us means that we do things a certain way and think about things in a certain way, like having altar calls or having people come forward and counting the number of hands that go up and counting the number of, of people who make decisions for Christ. And if you're a missionary and reporting that back home, now there's nothing wrong with those things, but the point is that we emphasize them so much that it shapes our thinking in certain ways. For And one way I talk about is that if we emphasize conversion, but don't emphasize discipleship and sanctification, because of that, 
then, well, we end up with the problem we just talked about in the first segment, right? That the lack of um, of Christ-likeness and the lack of being filled with the Spirit and displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, it's not about making converts. It's, it's about making disciples and somewhere we missed that or mm-hmm. fell short of that um, along the way. That's really good. We're talking with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Um, her latest book is The Evangelical Imagination, she has many others as well. I would commend them all. I mean, really, you're just reading and writing. Um, you you are reading so much more than the rest of us are reading, and then you're writing about it, and it's it's such a gift. Um, so one one thing that occurs to me, Karen, and you start here um, with this term awakening, um, mm-hmm. and explore the theme of awakening. Um, and depending on who you are, what might come to mind would be the Great Awakening. And I'm like praying for the next Great Awakening. Maybe we're seeing the next Great Awakening, like all of that. But then there's also this wokeness, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a related um, a related term or topic as well. Um, talk with us about moving from dreams to awakenings. Well, this is where so much of my reading comes in because dreaming and awakening are, are, are there cosmic symbols that which means you find them everywhere in all of human cultures and literature uh including our own literary traditions so so and and including the bible um and so this idea of you know uh, a symbolic dream sleep symbolic awakening is just part of not only human culture but even evangelicalism that's why we named the first great revivals in america the great awakenings um there's a reason for that awake o sleeper the scripture says and so this is a powerful metaphor that talks about spiritual awakening um and even our i put it before the chapter on conversion because we have to have that awakening before we can know our need for conversion um, but evangelicals in, in the 18th and 19th centuries also used that term to talk about social reform. They were the ones in England were abolitionists. They wanted to see change across society. They were advocates for animal welfare. So they had their own consciences pricked and they wanted to open other people's eyes to the injustice around them. And so awakening was, wasn't was just spiritual for them, it was social. And so now in America, we have this term wokeness, which refers to social injustice. And a lot of evangelicals are nervous about that word. But really, it comes in the same tradition as, as the words and metaphors that we use about our need to have our eyes opened, not only to our own sin, but to the sin around us. Yeah, I mean, so many like awakenings in literature that I mean, even when you just say that, like, right, my my brain, because I'm simple, I'm not complex. Uh, you know, I'm like, oh, Sleeping Beauty, Rip Van Winkle, these are awakening yes. stories, um, right? <laughs> okay. I wish I right, included got... them. They were great. That's uh, a great examples. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm here, Karen, to give you the simple examples <laughs> uh, in the midst of all the complexity. Um, Karen, as always, what a delight, what a joy. Um, thank you um, for who you are and how you do what you do each and every day. That's Karen Swallow Pryor. Um, you can find her at KarenSwallowPrior.com, her new book, The Evangelical Imagination. All right, we um, we are out of time today. I know that will not surprise you because you are thinking to yourself, um, wow, it's time for me to be getting on to the next thing. Well, as you're getting on to the next thing, take a deep breath and recognize that you're gonna um, you're gonna be with people today who are experiencing something you you absolutely do not know and cannot know 
Um, but it may be very raw and deep grief. Um, there is a lot of trauma right now because of what is happening around the world. And that trauma is realized in people's everyday interactions. And so let's be really gentle with one another today. Let's um, let's be praying for those we see and encounter. And let's be people of blessing out there in the world that God so loves. Have a, have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.